Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got on run to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. When our human parents first sinned, two things happened. First, the holy God who had created us was offended. And this offense had to be remedied through a perfect sacrifice. The expiation of our sin and the propitiation of God were accomplished by the vicarious death of Christ that we studied last week. Now, I know I just used some big words in that last sentence. 
because I believe that precise doctrine is important, and I am confident that you are capable of teaching beyond the basics. So you may have to do a little bit of research or ask a few people what expiation, propitiation, and vicarious actually means. But it was all part of God's plan that he reveals in the scriptures. But the second thing that happened when Adam and Eve rebelled is that they were introduced to shame. They had always been under the covering of God's protection and they had only known pure innocence. But when they stepped out from that place of protective covering, they discovered that they were uncovered for the first time and they felt shame. Now, many parents of toddlers have experience between the feelings of innocence by a child who has been freed from a diaper and the shame of a parent who observes his or her child's uncovered state. And while I can neither confirm nor deny the truthfulness of the claim, I have been told that 56 years ago, the congregants of First Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Kansas, were entertained by this very phenom on the porch of the parsonage one Sunday morning. A child in innocence, but everybody else felt shame for that child. This week we are told in the scripture of the burial of Christ which not only pays our debt to the God who was offended, but it takes away our shame. As I look before us, I see that actually there is an ancient problem. The ancient problem of shame. Now, shame is not as important to us as it is in some other cultures. Because there is a difference between debt and shame. I have four friends who moved from Wisconsin to Canada to minister among the First Nation people of the Chilcotin tribe. And one thing that Steve and Don and their wives reported to me is that the Chilcotin are very similar to many of the Asian peoples who value the tribe or the family more than the individuals. They learned that the Chilcotin valued honor and shame much more than debt or personal possessions. Resources belong to the reserve, not to the individual. Now, if I take something from you, I'm indebted to you until I give you something equal in value. But the socialist nature of the First Nation, along with many cultures around the world, they don't see personal debt. 
When we sing the song, he paid a debt, he did not owe, I owed a debt, I could not pay, I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That song is gibberish to those who live in a shame culture. They have no idea what I'm talking about, a debt I could not pay, and him paying a debt he did not owe. See, to ancient peoples, even in the Bible, they don't think in terms of transactions, payment, or the scales of justice. In their mindset, either a person is honorable or shamed. A person brings honor to the tribe or brings shame to the clan. And the remains of being shamed remain. Shame remains until honor is restored. And that's what Adam and Eve felt after they rebelled against God. They realized they were naked and they felt shame. Actually, the Bible tells a story in the first, in the second and the third chapters of our Bible. The earliest chapters of the Bible deal with the shame problem. The problem, and it speaks of this condition in terms of nakedness. For we read in Genesis 2.15, And the man and the wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Before sin, there was an innocence. Because they were under the covering of God and His plan for them. But the story continues because they were exposed yet without shame. But in the next chapter, we read that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of of Lord God. Because they have been introduced to the shame of their sin. After sin, they felt intrinsically that something had changed. And now their exposure brings shame and they make feeble attempts to cover their shame. But the end of that chapter goes on to tell us that God involves himself with their sense of shame by recovering them, by sacrifice of another. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, you may know more about animals than I do. But as I was running through my mind, snakes are the only animals I know that can shed a skin without dying. And so for God to provide garments of skins, another had to die to deal with their shame. 
And just if you're curious, somewhere between Genesis chapter 3, where they're wearing leather, and in Leviticus chapter 19, they've learned how to weave together cloth so that they can make clothing for themselves. They can hide their nakedness with cloth that does not require the death of another. There's another story I could tell you about Leviticus 19.19, but you're going to have to read for yourself. I wonder what he was trying to say. It has something to do with being unique. See, God provided through the death of another a covering for their shame. Centuries later, we hear another story that deals with shame. It was the Day of Atonement that God established in Leviticus 16. And on the Day of Atonement, there were three animals that were involved. First, Aaron had to offer a bull as a covering for his sin and the sin of his family. Then after his family's sin was covered, he entered into the temple of God and he took with him two goats. One goat he offered as a blood covering for the sin of the people. But what did he do with the second goat? The second goat is the root of the phrase that we have, a scapegoat. On that second goat, Aaron would place his hands and he would transfer the guilt and the shame of the previous year of all the people upon that goat. And then he would send that goat away into the wilderness. It was a temporary picture of taking away the shame of the people. Their guilt was dealt with through the blood of one goat. And their shame was dealt with by the sending away the separation of shame as that goat, the Azazel, was sent into the desert. Now that takes us back to Luke that we've been studying in our Sunday morning series. In Luke chapter 23, the previous chapter, or earlier verses to what we are studying this morning, we have an account of two thieves or malefactors, two people who did bad on a consistent basis. On either side of Jesus. And as I look at Luke 23, beginning in verse 41, it begins with we. For one of the malefactors looks at the other and says, Don't you know that we deserve what we are getting? And then he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The transfer has to be personal. We are all guilty, but Aaron would place the hand upon the one goat, and there was a personal transfer. The thieves upon the crosses said, we are guilty, but the one had to say, forgive me. It had to be a personal repentance for their group. Shame. Now, because we often have trouble believing for ourselves what God grants by grace, 
God arranges for a specific burial that will provide evidence of our shame being removed. Because in verses 50 through 56 of today's lesson, we read of the Jewish practice of preparation. Very specific preparation had to be done before the day of Sabbath. And in these verses, we read some very specific things about the tomb in which Jesus was laid. First of all, verse 60 of Matthew 27, another portion of the Bible that tells the same story. In Matthew 27, we read that the tomb was Joseph's personal tomb. He owned a tomb, and he went to Pilate and said, Can I have the body of Jesus and to put it in my own personal tomb? This was an act of respect that cost Joseph significantly. To own a hewn tomb in the first century would have been quite costly. But Joseph says, I'm not going to be needing it for a while. I will use it for Jesus. But the cost of personal cost upon Joseph was not only the cost of the tomb. Because when Joseph took that body off the cross, and when he wrapped it in linen, he touched a dead body, which meant for seven days he was ceremonially unclean. Numbers chapter 13 says, if you ever touch a dead body, three days later, you need to be sprinkled with ceremonial water. And on the seventh day, you need to be sprinkled with ceremonial water in order to make you ceremonially clean. And so this was the day before Passover. Passover to the ancient Jews is more important than Christmas is to us. And so for him to touch the body of Christ rendered him unclean and unable to participate in Passover that year. It would be very similar to one of us being quarantined on Christmas Day and not being permitted to interact with our family. There was a personal, there was a financial cost. There was a personal cost to Joseph. Now, we don't know if Joseph expected to need his own tomb within three days or within 30 years. Because there was a a common custom in that day that a body would be wrapped in linen, laid into a tomb until the body decomposed. And then the linen would gather together the bones that remained to be buried elsewhere in an ossuary something that would take less space. And so we don't know if Joseph says, his body's going to decompose before I need that tomb, so I might as well let Jesus have my tomb. Or we don't know if Joseph had heard Jesus say, and three days later I will rise again, and Joseph says, I'm not planning to need my tomb for the next three days. But verse 51 clearly states that he, even though he was one of the Sanhedrin, he was looking forward to the kingdom of God in some form. Either he was going to be resurrected in the kingdom or God was going to bring his kingdom, but he was looking forward and so he knew he would only need his tomb temporarily. Verse 53 of Luke 
tells us that it was an unused tomb. The ancient tradition of burial was designed to keep the wild animals from disturbing a corpse as it decomposed. In Egyptian burials, often the internal organs were separated and preserved apart from the skeleton. But the reason for leaving a body undisturbed in a tomb was a recognition that there's some form of a bodily resurrection. Or there's some sense in which a body is required in the world to come. And so out of respect, they would protect that deceased body to keep it from being disturbed by the wild animals. Now, as just an interesting side note, when we talk about preserving one's body and in the world to come, let me advise you that the time to have this discussion with your family is not when you are in the middle of crisis or grief. This week, I renewed my driver's license. And when asked if I wanted to be an organ donor... I was able to give a quick reply because Anna and I have already had discussions about God's ability to reconstitute a body from either burial at sea, earthly decomposition, or cremation. Or if God needs to gather organs from different places in order to reconstitute a heavenly body, that we believe God is able. So you may come to very different conclusions than we have. But we are at peace that our choices reflect the truth that one died so that another may live. The belief that God will recreate our heavenly bodies. And three, that we maintain respect for the body that has been vacated until it is resurrected. So your choices about cremation, about organ donation, about burial, about embalming or not, they're your choices for you to make with your family. But our convictions rest upon those three commitments. One died for other. God will reconstitute our bodies, and the body must be respected. Now, notice in verse 55, the exact tomb. The women went to the tomb on Friday. They scooted in, and they looked at the body exactly as it was laid. I don't think they had any mistakes on Sunday when they went back to visit. If on Friday they went to those steps, they knew the exact tomb where Christ was laid. You know, some have tried to deny Christ's resurrection by claiming that the women just simply went to the wrong tomb. Or that even the disciples thought, you know, maybe the ladies just got it wrong. Which then caused them to check for themselves. And sure enough, they went to the exact tomb and it was empty, just as the ladies had said. See, I believe verse 55 precludes that argument that the women went to the wrong tomb. 
Well, verse 49 says they watched the finality of the crucifixion from a distance. This verse clearly stated that they noticed how his body was laid, which would have required entering the tomb itself and seeing the final rest. This can't be done from a distance. It requires proximity. So I conclude that the women knew even better than the soldiers who were outside or the disciples who verified their testimony later. The women knew that the tomb they entered on Friday was the same tomb that they entered on Sunday. Now, each of our ranchers can testify about how aggressive wild animals can get with a carcass. So any stone that was used to secure a tomb would need to be heavy enough to resist ravenous, hungry animals. Therefore, it is significant that all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four tell us that the stone was rolled away. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let the witnesses in. I I think it's actually for us forgiveness that is on display. Verses 1 through 8 tell us God is saying the shame has been dealt with. Come enjoy the relationship. Now, on the um, two or maybe three times in my childhood when I received a spanking, after the licks were applied, Dad would always put away his belt, which told me that the punishment was complete. And then every single time I received a spanking, it was followed by a hug from my father to say the relationship is still intact. And he would send me to my room to think about what I had done and why the punishment was given. The ripping of the veil from the top to the bottom, the rolling away of the stone, were both gracious acts of God giving access to those of us who had glory in forgiveness. He rolled the stone away so that we could go in and we could see the empty tomb. It was God's way of saying, yes, the offense was real. The punishment was required, but the relationship is now restored. If you tweet, that's tweetable. The offense was real. The punishment was required but the relationship is now restored. Forgiveness was put on display, and it was told in verses 9 through 11 by faithful witnesses. When when I look at chapter 24, verse 9, I, I simply see that these women are simply telling what they saw, telling what they had seen. They were not some sort of theology expert. They didn't have all of the answers. They simply told the eleven, this is what we saw with our own eyes. 
And I'm telling you today that you don't need to be some sort of a theology expert to tell what Christ has done for you. If you have tasted of His forgiveness, you can tell of that forgiveness without having all of the answers, without knowing all of the verses of the Bible. You don't need to be an expert to simply tell of what you have seen. It's like the one blind man says, I don't know about all of that. All I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. Faithful witnesses simply have to tell our own story. See, in verse 4, I see that the, the women are perplexed. They, they, they don't quite understand what's happening. In verse 5, they're frightened. It kind of talks about us when we're witnessing, huh? Sometimes we don't have all the answers. Sometimes we're frightened, intimidated by other people. But look at verse 8. When they remembered his words, they told these things. When they remembered, just as Macy said, children, if you get in the Bible, you find out what is true. As we get into the Bible and we find out it's true, when we realize what God has done for us, we don't need all the answers. We simply tell what we know. We tell what we have experienced. We remain faithful to tell His words that we know are true. And notice the response in verse 11. Even though the women were telling the eleven exactly what Jesus had already told them several times before, they still didn't believe the women. They're telling them the same thing Jesus told them, but they don't believe the women. And and you have heard me several times in the last couple weeks speak of our 55 challenge. That is, in the year 2022, to have 50 gospel conversations with an opportunity to respond and to trust that five of those conversations will result in somebody saying yes to Jesus and no to their sin. See, the challenge is not for you to become some sort of an expert. The challenge is not for you to be able to convince everyone with your great persuasion Now, the challenge also does not permit you to be unnecessarily rude. We need to expect that there will be fruit to our telling of the story. But the challenge takes Christ at His word that the harvest is ripe, and He calls us to be witnesses. The challenge realizes that the response is not your responsibility, But we are trusting God to reward the faithful witness of those who have been changed. And God can use us to tell what he's done for us. I see forgiveness. I've seen faithful witnesses. I also see a movement from weeping to amazement. Popular psychology is hesitant to acknowledge that genuine change is possible. The best they can offer is, well, some, some form of behavior modification. But the Word of God describes true change. Notice the very last clause of verse 12. That Peter went home marveling at what had happened. 
Where was Peter the last time that Luke spoke of him? The last time Peter was mentioned by Luke, he was weeping alone bitterly because he had denied Christ three times, just as Jesus predicted he would. But verse 9 of Luke 24 indicates the 11, that's the 12 disciples minus Judas, the 11 were together. When the women came back from the tomb on Sunday morning, they found the 11 together. So Peter was with the other 10. Now, while we tend to get very excited about hypocrites, There's no mention of Peter being excluded from the band because he had said one thing and done another. Maybe this is an unworded message about how true communities overlook one another's faults. If the ten knew that he was a hypocrite and they welcomed him to be with them, Maybe we can overlook the faults of others. And we can expect others to overlook our faults. Because we're all imperfect disciples. And even though Peter has last mentioned that he's weeping bitterly because of his denials, he's with the disciples. And the women come, and they tell their story, and they don't believe the women. So Peter says, fine, I will check this out for myself. He investigated for himself the testimony. And I don't expect you to believe my story when I tell you what Christ has done for me. I give you the liberty and the freedom and the responsibility to check the story out for yourself. My faith doesn't need to become your faith. But I think my faith can be a spark in you finding your own faith. For notice the response. When Luke, Luke Luke uses an interesting word in this, and it's kind of hard for us to understand. Because there is one word that means a grave. But the word tomb is a memorial word. And there's a difference between a memorial garden and a graveyard. And Luke himself has used both of these words. For we see back in uh, chapter 11, verse 44, Jesus says, your mouths are like open graves. And Luke uses that word for the grave. But in all of this text today, In Luke 24, he doesn't use that word, the grave, the place of the dead. He uses the word tomb, which is a memorial chamber. He's saying Peter went back into the place of memories. And he remembered all of his interactions with Jesus. Our culture has all sorts of memorials. If you travel about four blocks to our north, You can find parks and ball fields named in memory of individuals. You can find monuments with names of veterans who are now gone. And whether the person is there or not, the place is designated as a place to remember. 
And when Luke here is speaking of the tomb, he's not talking about the place where the body is. He's talking about the place of remembrance, to remember all that Jesus had said and done. As a matter of fact, Luke's words come from the same word of mnemonic. You've heard of a mnemonic device, something that we use to help us memorize or to remember? That word mnemonic is the root of this word tomb. It's a place of remembering. It's a place of memorial, not a place of death, not a place of grieving. It's a place where we remember the life of another. And when Peter went to the place of remembrance, he saw, he weighed the evidence for himself, and he went home marveling. He had moved from weeping alone to amazement. And I think when we recall, when we remember, when we come to understand the great love of God for us, that He knows our shortcomings, He loves us anyway, it should cause us to wonder. How could someone who truly knows my shortcomings actually love me and forgive me the way He does? So Peter went home wondering. When we consider that He would separate us from all of our guilt and separate us from our shame, it should cause us to worship and surrender. If he is willing to take away my shame, I'm willing to serve him. Jesus, we just want to serve you. Serve you for being so good. Our final song this morning retells of what Jesus did on that weekend. And if you have never surrendered to his forgiveness... As we sing, I invite you to come to the front of the church. Tell me, preach or pray for me. And I will partner you up with somebody of your same gender to show you from the Word of God how you can know that your shame has been dealt with. But if you, like Peter, are being reminded of the many times that he has forgiven your shortcomings, let this song renew your wonder as we offered to him an act of worship. It's actually a contemporary setting of a song that we've already sung this morning. It's a song that tells us 